Welcome to episode 90 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. I'm joined once again on a Friday evening by Darren Hill. Uh, Darren, how are you on this Friday evening? Just enjoying uh, a nice cold one, Daz, after uh, another Groundhog Day, COVID day, working from home and parenting from home. So, I've heard today, I don't know if you've read this, that there seems to be some more optimism coming about about that the NBA season might be salvaged, but... I just can't get my head around how that could possibly work, given the state that America's in at the moment, Daz. I mean, what's, have you got any yeah. more optimism from what you're reading about whether the season can still go ahead? Yeah, I'm seeing the same things, which is, they're just calling it rumblings, right? And I think it's a, my impression is they're reading the signals from the politicians um, and, um, and sort of this at least the dialogue's already starting about loosening up and getting it first before I kind of really start to engage in it. But yes, I'm seeing seeing and hearing the same rumblings. Um, so well, I just maybe can't I'm see. 2% I mean, more. With, yeah. the short, with the shortage of testing over there, I just can't see a scenario where the NBA is going to say, we're going to hole up somewhere and then we're going to hoard all these tests. And while the, the American public are struggling to get testing and, and there's people literally dying... Uh, well, not so much in the streets, but certainly by great numbers, um, that the people are going to sit back and, and be okay with that. I just, I just think the reputational risk to the NBA of going ahead, it, at some some point, someone's going to stand up and say this is a bad idea. Um, so I'm, I'm interested that people are, are getting a little bit optimistic, but I'm just, mm. I'm not sure where the optimism actually comes from. Um, to be honest with you, other than the fact that, as you say, maybe they're, they're doing some two-leaf rooting from some of the politicians over there, but um, without getting too far into the weeds there, I wouldn't trust um, what American politicians say at the best of the times, does uh, yeah. alone at the moment. Probably literally every day getting information, no doubt they're doing scenario planning, like what if, you know, what if we are comfortable as of, you know, May the 1st to start the process? What if we're comfortable on June the 1st what if we're comfortable on July the first? No doubt that they're doing, you know, scenario planning like every business is at the moment, and and then trying to play just uh, what are the contingencies in each of those situations, ramifications for reg season, ramifications for fitness of the players, ramifications for playoffs, playoff length, playoff seating, and of course, you know, everything related to the draft and the off season, and free agency contracts and the new league year and all the rest of it so no doubt they're doing all that planning and what i did see is and i don't think we talked about this on episode 89c was that i'm seeing there's um i don't think the language is a minimum but an expected 25 day window is kind of it sounds like the framework where the um, players union and the league have talked about if the league does restart it'd be a minimum or a defined 25 day period for them, you know, assuming once they're cleared to practice, almost like a mini camp to restart and get ready for the whatever is left of a of a regular season finale and a up and a playoff run. So that's perhaps the most, I guess, if you call it encouraging is probably not the right way to look at it, but more kind of just some details coming out about if and when they do push a bit of an amber light or green light. That's kind of a, a framework. Well, I think the date to watch is at the moment is the first of May. They were they are meeting tomorrow uh, to uh, the the NBA board of governors just to sort of put some scenarios out there. But the first of May is a date where they're going to make some decisions. Um, and, I, and as you point out, I've kicked the can down the road and saying now we're going to push it to the first of June. 
or they'll make some decisions and say, you know what, maybe we're back on the 25th of May for argument's sake, um, or they or they sort of select mm. an arbitrary date and say that's the date that we're now aiming towards. Um, which I, I guess it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to say let let's have a uh, let's have a date that that's sort of aspirational in nature, and we can maybe work towards that. But I just I can't see a scenario where this settles down enough in the United States where the NBA is comfortable on a reputational basis, if, if not a safety basis, to go ahead with this. Um, because I think it's, yeah. there's going to be tough times ahead for the US given the trajectory of, of the virus at the moment. And there's things even happening now, kind of call it a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, but um, the state of Florida has decided that the World Wrestling whatever the WWE, whatever mm-hmm. that stands for, the wrestling... Wrestling, World um, Wrestling Entertainment. Entertainment, thank you very much. I forgot what he stood for and for a moment. But yeah, so he's, he was opening that up and saying the WWE back in, there's some big whatever going on. Sooner that was going to be back on the backlash, right? I got a lot of backlash. And so um, I don't think it's a given, right? That if if it's perceived by the by fans and right by the public to be opening up too soon, and not being really, really carefully thought through. Granted, you know they're still talking about no fans, but I just think they're we underestimate just given all the vitriol, anger, and noise that always comes from America and, and all the horror stories and the bodies stacking up in New York. You forget that there's you know this still perhaps is a maybe a very, very vocal um, I don't want to say minority, but you forget that there's a lot of sensible people over there is my point. And so there's a lot of backlash around the sensor on that thing opening up. So again, Adam Silver's not tone deaf. Um, I'd like to believe so. I think no, it's going to be just, what super if, cautious. One yeah. of the things I read today said they're going if if they go to Vegas for argument's sake, they're going to have a heap of tests there, and they're going to be doing regular tests on, and they need to have these 45 minute testing kits and things like that. And I just think if America's going in the direction that I think they're going. I just can't see that playing out. I mean, and I, you know, you put yourself in the shoes of someone who is over there, and thankfully we're in a better position at the moment in Australia, where you are desperate to get testing, and you think these NBA guys, just for the sake of playing a game, have hoarded all these tests, and we can't get any on the ground wherever. Um, I just think that's that's not going to fly, um, and that's that's where I think. Yeah, I that's a really them. good point. Yeah, that's I, a really good point. Yeah, I, I yeah. think in the end that that's where common sense will prevail, and unless there's a real flattening of the curve over in the US, because it's not just a matter of saying yes, the NBA players are safe, yes, we've quarantined them from everyone else. Um, there's a lot of and, and this is why the, the problem with any sport going ahead, it's actually the resources, the medical resources you need for those sports to go ahead that you're taking away from the general public. That's, that's I think, where the real problem lies as much as anything else because a lot of those players, they're not at risk of death themselves because unless they've got some underlying medical issue, it's going to be a sort of Ruby, Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell-type situation where they're not going to be that sick. Um, and certainly not life-threatening, but you, if, if you're taking those resources, the testing kits, etc., away uh, from the general public, that's where I think problems can happen. Um, and again, the reputational risk will be there to the NBA. So again, Daz, we'll watch it uh, with interest and, and see where we go from there. there. There has been some NBA news, though, uh, particularly around the, the Hall of Fame, and we wanted to talk about this because... We had one of our famous lost pods, Dad. We as we uh, we talked about the Kobe Bryant news. 
Uh, and I wanted to, I guess, so quickly on the Hall of Fame, I mean, I think the four, there's four headline names to me is uh, Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett and Rudy Tomjanovich. And obviously the Kobe story is going to be the big story of, of the Hall of Fame. I'll talk you through my experience with, with Kobe when I mm. heard the news and then also get your when you, what your reaction was. I was actually over in Paris at the time, and, and the NBA, as a matter of fact, was in Paris uh, for the Bucks Hornets game. And I was watching. There, there was no English language shows on other than I think CNN. So I just had CNN on in the background and the interminable boredom of uh, the the impeachment trial. Mm. And then they interrupted the impeachment trial to say breaking news, Kobe Bryant has passed away in a helicopter accident. And I was just gobsmacked, um, as I think everyone was, when you sort of hear that news, particularly someone that was such a larger-than-life figure. Uh, and immediately I realised also there's games being played at the time. And I think there was a game that just tipped off. And as it happened, the Spurs-Raptors uh, game was about to tip off as well. So I got the NBA league pass out and thought... I'll just see what the reaction is. And it was just, it was unlike anything I've ever seen before. The players were just in a daze. Tim Duncan was in tears on the bench. Uh, DeRozan was just, uh, he was just completely lost it. The only guy that looked like he'd turned up the play game of basketball was Pascal Siakam. Siakam had like 17 points in the first six minutes because he grew up in the soccer background. So he probably wasn't as close it wasn't as big a deal to him potentially as it was to everyone else, uh, and that's not to say that he was indifferent. But I, I just think it was it was a, probably a different situation to him, uh, and it was it was just such a real day of, of NBA action. I watched a couple of games, and I, I've never witnessed games like that before, uh, where where players were just going through the motions uh, as much as they were. But what was your reaction, Dasman? Do you remember where you were and, and what your sort of immediate thoughts were at the time, other than obviously, uh, of course, the tragedy that it was, not only Kobe, but all, all the, the families and, and the daughters of, of the team that passed away as well? Yeah, I was probably, uh, I do recall being quite busy. It was a work thing happening. And, um, yeah, still probably right, still focused on on the day as I do if I was consuming say Bucks news first but it was in um, I got texts from people in the US going oh my god oh my god and I thought yeah so I sort of was just going about my day and then got these texts from people uh, that know how you know how much I love the NBA but yeah I guess what was strange Daz I, I probably my first thought was you hear how it happened and I couldn't help but think of things like um, in the U.S. context, like John F. Kennedy Jr., you know, very, very famous and beloved celebrity, you know, and, and then some, you know, dying in a small cargo, cargo, uh, you know, small plane, light, um, plane yeah. a, light plane accident, thank you, right? And just the horror, you know, of someone's life taken way too soon. A um, little bit less famous down here in Australia, but if you if you follow, follow golf at all or did, oh, um, very sure. famous. and yeah. Payne Stewart, yeah, good one, good one. That's exactly right. So that's where my first head was. I was like, oh my God, these, you know, these these guys, um, you know, these these people are extremely busy lives and always being stretched and pulled in some direction and just trying to, you know, make it not make ends meet, but just you know go from one thing to the next. That's what I first thought about. The second thing was that I heard 
that it was a, you know, who was in the plane or the helicopter with him and that it was, you know, they just picked up another family, if I'm not mistaken, and is taking, and they're going to a, um, his daughter's basketball tournament. I think I'm it was not a mistaken now, Dennis. It was a basketball A camp. camp. It was a camp, a tournament, his, a camp. His daughter's tournament yeah. going, going down there. And Kobe was really involved. Like, he was heavily involved in his daughter's basketball yeah. tournament. He was actually yeah. really pushing women's basketball uh, in general uh, for the last couple of years. It's been a couple of months now, but if... So my thoughts went to who else has passed away this way in a young, at a young age. And then I, you know, I learned that I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, we're not breaking news here or anything. I think his daughter was with him on the plane. Yeah. And and you just think, oh, what that must have been like as a father, you know, to kind of at some moment, it would have been a very harrowing experience. This helicopter flying through the clouds and the in the fog and not finding a spot. And that could that could not have been a comfortable um, time, you know, when you're terrified probably confusion growing to frustration, probably growing to fear, growing to terror. You can only imagine what that's like. So that's where my head immediately went, went to Daz was just that, that final experience. And then, you know, very rapidly, unfortunately, the, you know, Twitterverse gets and people can't help themselves from, from trolling and, you know, bringing up everything, you know, that happened to him off the court and, you know, whatever happened in that hotel room over many years ago in, in Colorado. Gosh, if you, you see a little bit about if there's one way to have a, you, know, you want to have a funeral, have one like the way Kobe had, and to have a, you know, kind of everyone healing and grieving together that way. So, um, yeah, awful, awful, tragic, shocking, way too young. Um, but, uh, yeah, the other thing, I guess the last point that now that you've brought me to this dark, <laughs> dark place, Daz, was I've had just personally, not my personal experience, but, you know, all my second favorite teams have been always the San Diego teams and the Phoenix Suns. So, I'm a Padres fan and a Chargers fan, and, and you know Tony Gwynn, my absolute idol baseball player. I'm not sure if that name means anything to you, but yeah. a Hall of Fame baseball player. I absolutely beloved. I wear wristbands on my arms because of Tony Gwynn when I was a little kid. Absolutely my idol, and uh, he finished his very very illustrious and long Hall of Fame baseball career. Started coaching at his alma mater in San Diego State, and very very rapidly developed you know mouth and throat cancer and passed away at about, I don't know, late eight, late 40s or, or late 40s in age. So that was an awful, awful early tragedy. And then again, also in San Diego, Junior Seau, right, with CTE, one of the mm-hmm. most popular, beloved NFL players of his of his generation, kind of made made defense cool again, you know, kind of him and Erlocker, kind of a similar... Well, him and you know, Ronnie uh, Lott were the two I remember. Yeah, um, yeah, made defense cool again, right? And just the you know, the passion he played with and just beloved, beloved man. And we come to learn that he committed suicide and it was no doubt CTE related. So, you know, so you, you got, you got those situations as well, Daz, and happened to be all Southern California. Now that I think about it, um, superstars. Mm. So, yeah, I guess it's, it sort of falls in that camp, that camp for me, Daz, it's this, this horrible thing. It, it reminds you of the fragility of stuff and uh, of life. And now, especially in the COVID world, just, just how, you know, hopefully that people are taking more stock and being more self-aware and, you know, appreciating and showing gratitude for what they have while, while they have it. So, yeah, quite a – it's affected everyone, I think, in that way, Des, certainly in the basketball community. Mm. And I think looking back on, on Kobe Bryant, I mean, Kobe Bryant, the person, I think is a complicated character because he, he came to the NBA so young, growing up in Italy, and really – you know, you could imagine being thrown in as a teenager 
particularly at the Lakers. And, and at that time, the Lakers were an older team and a more veteran team as well. So it would have been a difficult experience um, for KB Bryant, I think, going into into professional basketball at that time. Uh, so and I think that probably affected the way he did interact with other people um, over the years. It certainly wouldn't surprise me um, if that was if that was the case. Uh, but talking, looking more too about the basketball player that he was, I think well, there's only been one other guy that was just as as dogged a competitor as what Kerry Bryant was, and that was Michael Jordan to me. I mean, can you remember? Th- is that what stuck sticks out to you? That's what always sticks out to me with Kerry Bryant was every time he walked on the court, he thought he was the best player. But he would rip your throat out for a win if he needed it. And he's one of the few guys that just never, ever took a night off. And you never, ever, until very late in his career when he's sort of on one leg, you never watched the Kobe game and thought, well, Kobe's coasting tonight, did you? No, he doesn't have, he wasn't a coaster. It's exactly right. It's that the competitive fire every time the balls rolled out is he took everything, every game personally. So whether he was going up against you know, um, you know, Bryant Reeves or, or, uh, you know, Tim Duncan, it was, you know, he, he wants to bloody win and, um, you do anything, you slap a ball out of Kobe's hands in the first quarter and he'd pick you out and then, you know, make that the thing that makes him breathe fire. Yeah. So of course I never loved, as you've heard me talk about in the last, our last pod and probably no doubt over the years, I, I style of play is, means a lot to me and, there's nothing graceful or artistic about his style of play. And so I, I was never really, I was never really a fan of how he played and especially right. Being a Suns fan and, you know, um, and those teams of the seven seconds or less, and, you know, um, and through the two thousands when he was at his absolute um, apex predator, you know, so I was never had, never was a fan to be honest of, of the player. Um, but you're right. in what your point was is just the, I got to say, even I think Giannis to an extent has this as well. Daz, we'll see. Giannis is still pretty young; um, he hasn't won anything yet. But I think Giannis is wired similarly, which is the, you know, he'll come on and he'll he'll smash the ball into your face, whether you're Costa Kufos or or Ben Simmons, and he, you know, Giannis crowning himself, you know, and LeBron on the court, literally. So there's that hubris about about him. But back to the point. I don't mean to make this about Giannis, but yeah, absolutely, which is indelible with Kobe. And no doubt defined why, in large part, why he was great is this relentless, relentlessness. I mean, I'm just having a glance at his basketball reference to be one, two, three, four, five. At five years in his career, Daz, where he averaged more than 40 minutes played, right? I know the era was slightly different, but he's playing 80 games, 40 minutes a night, you know, and scoring 30 points a night and just just didn't know how to, he didn't know any other way than going, you know, 100%, you know, from whistled wire to wire. Well, there's two things I remember about Kobe's career that really stand out to me. Uh, The first one is actually a moment in a game or a moment after a game, actually, where he, when LeBron was, the first season, I think it was, when LeBron was in Miami and they played the Lakers, a big game on a Thursday night, you know, turn two, and Kobe had a shot to win from, I think it was around the elbow, and he missed that shot, went in and out. And Kobe came out after the after everyone left the, the arena. Kobe came out in an empty gym and stood in that one spot, and did not leave until he hit that same shot a hundred times. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, like like Tiger Woods missing a putt, right, a two or three foot putt, and he would just 
he would stew on it. And he goes, you, you imagine the internal dialogue, which is, wasn't, oh, you'll get him next time, right? It was, you motherfucker, you know, you can imagine <laughs> the internal dialogue and the regret and the remorse and how they think I'm not good enough. And that just that, that failure would yeah. fuel them to the extreme. That's a great example. That's a great example. I can totally see him doing that. So on the second one was, and there was a lot of talk over the years about Kobe Bryant's inefficiency. And, he, and you'd always see these games where he'd shoot, you know, the famous one was the 8 of 24 game in game seven uh, yeah. against the Celtics. But Kurt Goldsberry, I think it was, wrote a really interesting article for Grantland uh, a few years back. And he actually came up with a stat called the Kobe. And I see this a little bit with Donovan Mitchell as well. And he said... The amount of times Kobe would miss a shot, but the Lakers would get the offensive rebound for just the easy putback, and he was he and I can't remember the exact number because he's always getting double and triple teamed always, at the, at the would, point of release. Everyone would collapse yeah. on him. He'd throw up these yeah. circus shots, which and he couldn't shoot three. Invariably right? wouldn't yeah. go in. But then you got you know um, Power Gasol, Lade or Power or whomever, etc. Yeah. You know, yeah. grabbing the rebounds and getting the putbacks. And I see it with Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell will get a double team. He's throwing this this rubbish up to the rim, and of course, who's there? Rudy Gobert comes in and just gets the dunk. So I think Kobe sort of lives on in some of those other players um, in the NBA as well. So as much as you might, so when you look back on that, those stats and, and the, the field goal percentage might not be the greatest, but uh, you've got to remember that the way he played the game and just the relentlessness he had in attacking the rim and getting to the line, uh, you know, was was far more efficient than probably what the numbers show, uh, particularly when you get the rebounds and Bynum and players like that um, that were were crashing the boards in those days. Um, So, look, he'll be missed. I think he's... His legacy lives on, does. I think he's he inspired a generation. I mean, basketballers love Kobe Bryant. Uh, if you, you ask basketballers who the greatest players of all time is, I would be surprised. Very few would not have Kobe Bryant in the top five. Um, like, he is beloved and he's really highly, highly respected by the guys that play the games. I think you've got to take that into account. And as I said, there's a lot of players that are uh, inspired by his game. Um, and I wonder who the next guy is going to be because not everyone, you know, because I think the thing with Giannis and, and LeBron, it's it's very difficult to try and emulate those guys because of the way they are. Whereas I think Kobe had some areas to his game. You're like, if, if you have that drive and that fire and that competitiveness, um, you can you can try and emulate Kobe Bryant at least to some degree. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see how long his legacy lives on, and, we're, and I'm sure we'll see um, we'll see some Kobe Bryant in other places. Last point on Kobe, and I'll get you to end on your last thoughts on him. But did you see the LeBron dunk, the LeBron um, over the back of the head dunk that was in memory of Kobe in the game not long after he passed away? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. I mean, it was just yeah. it was yeah. unbelievable. The, LeBron's attention to detail and the memory the man has is absolutely phenomenal. And the, the similarities between those two dunks, I just... Because when I first sort of saw the two fars, I thought, yeah, come on. Surely they're not that close. And then I actually saw the videos 
So the <laughs> <thing> was, <laughs> it was just, it was unbelievable. Well, um, LeBron's such a savant. What he says is he, you know, he can't predict when the play is going to happen. So I actually believe him, but it just, he said it just came to him. He didn't really realize what he was going to do until he went up in the air. But clearly this play had been in his mind. Clearly he'd had, you know, probably a very clear mental image of, of what it looked like. So, well, then you yeah, knew it was pretty too, cool. I mean, uh, Kobe's yeah. memory was going to come up as well in the, in the Western Conference NBA finals as well, um, yeah. which another thing we've sort of been robbed of, um, that sort of final farewell if you like or yeah. just another yeah. another moment to remember Kobe Bryant the player um, in the sort of Western Conference or NBA Finals depending on how far the Lakers went yeah look it's you know it's going to be interesting what happens at the Hall of Fame ceremony I reckon there'll be a lot of you know there won't be many dry eyes I'm not sure how they're going to do that you know who's going to you know provide the acceptance speech you know will will Shaq come up and do something will Phil Jackson come up and do something will you know, well, his wife, it's going to be really interesting to see how hell would pop, you know, might pop, you know, in his golden years here, um, you know, do something as well. So I'm actually quite curious to see how, as you say, um, especially now that he's gone, certainly while he was here making impact, um, you know, after he'd retired, he'd certainly had the respect. But it's going to be really interesting to see how they, you know, how they pay tribute to him at the Hall of Fame induction. And quickly on the other players, so Tim Duncan, obviously close to my heart, uh, the greatest power forward ever, uh, in my opinion, though, you know, you could argue he played centre for the vast majority of career, but Spurs yeah. fans always loved to say he was a power forward, so we can claim him as the best ever uh, in that <laughs> position. Uh, Kevin Garnett, I, I'd love to have seen Kevin Garnett come into the game now. Uh, I think he'd be a, a completely different player, maybe even a better player coming into mm. the game now to be very interesting and of course Rudy Tomjanovic the great coach um, coach of US, USA basketball as well as uh, as the Houston Rockets I mean what are your memories of, of those players and, and you can sort of take them in and, and the coach and take them in any particular order you like well Timmy D of course I was a I was massive massive college basketball fan so I'd watched Tim Duncan for years at Wake Forest I saw him play in the NCAA tournament, saw him live at the Bradley Center in Milwaukee. You know, I, so I've, I've, you know, I've known his career pretty well. Um, obviously, the same thing with with the Admiral. You know, it's hard to separate those two. You know, playing at Navy. So, but obviously Tim Duncan. So I trailed trailed for a long time. But then, you know, the, um, obviously as a Suns fan, um, it was always painful. You know, not being able to get around them when the Suns had their best teams in the in the 2000s. So. You know, I'd sort of, to be honest, probably just lumped Timmy in with, uh, you know, with all the bad memories there, Daz, and wrapped it up in a rubbish bag and threw well, it in the corner. Do you remember the three yeah. hit to beat Phoenix? Uh, this is the one that they bank it in. Was it banked? Well, they actually pop dropped the play for Tim Duncan, and uh, I think it sent it to overtime, actually. And uh, San Antonio yeah. ended up winning. But that, that's one of the most. Those are the things that actually don't do it. Obviously, you know. <laughs> You know that that doesn't actually stick with me. You know, there's plenty of those you know, Dame Dame throwing those down. Curious about Duncan drilling that shot. I think Charles Barkley also ended a series, if I'm not mistaken, with a, a pull-up 20-footer over the Spurs. So, yeah, 93. Um, 93, wasn't it? Yeah, um, early on, when he was a young. Uh, even in the league, he wasn't in the league then, was he? That was no, no. no. The, Robinson had hit the shot. That's actually on YouTube. It was, that game. Yeah, that's right. Though, which yeah. is a great so Timmy game. wasn't there yet. Robinson but, uh, hit the shot to put the Spurs up one, 
and then uh, Barclay right. comes down and Robinson and picks him up at half court. So it's it's Barclay and Robinson who were who were probably two of the yeah. best players in the NBA that season, along yeah. with Jordan. And Barclay yeah. just sort of hits a hits the pull up right in his face. Yeah, uh, that was the moment. I think Barclay's like, "Yep, I'm on the I'm on that upper echelon. I'm just a bit <laughs> I'm going, than you. I'm here today. I've got this today." But yeah, so that's that's Timmy. And then of course, um, you know, I was uh, like most NBA fans, just couldn't believe how LeBron left Cleveland. So I, you know, put him in the villain camp when he was with Miami and those two series against the Spurs was back to back years, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, So watching it the year when, you know, Timmy had that very, obviously the very famous tip in shot that was, you know, could have that two footer, a layup that would have a little bunny in Mm. the, yeah. And that was that game seven. Well, what I remember about that, what people forget is in game six, of that series, which obviously the game the Spurs should have won. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Duncan had 27 points in the first half, and he just reached. And I think he honestly, I, I think he might have retired yeah. after 2013 yeah. had they yeah. won that because that would have been a. If they that was the Ray him, Allen shot, right? The that was the six. Ray Allen shot. And he yeah. might have won finals MVP. I think he would have been right there for finals MVP, particularly given the way he played. It was probably him and Danny yeah. Green at that point. Yeah. Fighting it out for finals MVP, uh, and you know it was, a, and he ran out of gas in the second half. I think at that stage he was probably thirty five, thirty six. So he really sort of dug deep to come out with that performance. But it was, and and the the second memory I have is the, Duncan's last ever game was against OKC, and OKC were up about nineteen in Game Six, and it was pretty clear that um, Pop to to Pop and everyone else. Uh, Actually, yeah, I think I they were up by about twenty seven. Yep. And Pop put it was a blowout. Yep. Tim Duncan at that stage was hardly playing, and he put him and Andre Miller in for their last ever game. And anyway, Andre Miller and, and Duncan led the Spurs on this crazy run, and they got within seven. And then you could see <laughs> Billy Donovan on the bench just starting to sweat and go, they can't possibly do this. Can <laughs> and then Duncan come down the lane, tried to get a dunk, and uh, Barker yeah. just blocked it. Straight back into his face, and you're like, "No, you are, yeah, you are a little are, bit too old now." Tim. You're done. Yeah, he, he reached into the bag one last time, uh, yeah. and came up that little bit short. So, uh, yeah, so there's some of the fond, the fonder memories I have of Duncan later in his career when he used to sort of just the defense, his defensive awareness was just absolutely brilliant. But he'd also yeah. lose games when, particularly the way the Spurs played. And, and Zach Lowe actually wrote, he said, it's cool when they go to Duncan in the post. And he said, there's a hush comes over the crowd and everyone realises, ooh, remember when we used to do this every time down the court? <laughs> because at that point, of course, they were they were moving the ball better than any other team in the league and sort of created the, the pace and space. Yeah. Took it to the next level. I forget, I forget, how, old, I forget how old he was. I couldn't believe it. I just look it up here. He was... So the, the top and the tail for me was obviously watching him in college, and then he, then he slept with the enemy for 20 years, and but then he goes and played again in the series, of, you know, the most beautiful basketball ever played. That was 14, 15, right? Yeah, wasn't it? Or, yeah, yeah this 2013, um, 14 was the title. They're 14, 30, 14, 15. Yeah, they, um, no, no, they went out in the first round, but he he had yeah, a good series yeah. against the Clippers that year as well. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, so that was actually my last memory is that 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 series victory against um against the heat right and just uh yeah um 
the get some of the most beautiful basketball ever played. So, yeah, there'll be no shortage of accolades. Um, certainly thought about Timmy. You can no doubt say the the speeches will probably be shorter than those, <laughs> you know, proffered by the very verbose Kevin Garnett and everyone who's going to have something to say about um, about uh, about Kobe. Kobe, of course. Yeah, and uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know if there'd be three better players that have ever come into the Hall of Fame at the same time than that three, uh, Garnett, Brian, and, and Duncan. I mean, that's really, you know... About defining a generation. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I think, I yeah. always look at it, when people say who's the best player ever, I think you, you just can't compare eras. So I think to me it goes, sort of Russell and Wilt, if you want to put Wilt in there, then Kareem, then Magic Bird, then Jordan, then a little bit of Hakeem, then Jordan again, then Duncan yeah. Bryant, then LeBron, and now I guess you're hoping it's Giannis. So that that's the thing. Like it was Duncan and Bryant's league from probably what '99 through to '09, maybe even beyond that, uh, 2010, 2011. Because I mean the Lakers were still winning titles then, so it was sort of it was their league, and they sort of had a bit of your turn, my turn within that. Um, but that they did define a generation. Um, and I think, to my point earlier, I think Bryant sort of inspired players a little bit more than Duncan did, given the way he played the game. Uh, but th- there's no doubt that they were always right up there and, and fighting out the titles. And, and Garnett obviously got a, a title himself in Boston, but he was always that sort of little bit, that, that next rung below in those years. But I think, as I said earlier, I mean, do you agree with me if Garnett comes into the league now... Um, he's maybe even a better prospect uh, than he was going going way back uh, when he was first drafted. I'm, I mean, it's hard to say better, um, but he was. I don't. It's it's just that you know he played with a lot of bad teams for a lot a long time. Daz, I think, you know, had he been put into a you know a franchise that was more more mature, we wouldn't have hesitation to have very genuine arguments about him being better. Than Timmy Duncan, his certainly athleticism is no comparison, right? The way he could, um, his his defense, I would argue for parts of for probably stretches of his career, probably even higher than Duncan's peak, to be honest, right? And he obviously had a, a much longer um, and much more um, impactful sort of you know alpha scorer in in Kevin in, in his game as well. So I think I think you forget just how spectacular he was in in Minnesota, but it just happened to be on a lot of pretty ordinary teams. Um, and I forget he was he was there a long time. Well, they made 11, the conference finals in ten 04. years. Des. Yeah, he made the conference finals in '04, and I wonder if he leaves in say '06. Yeah, how much different is it? Because I think it, in the end he left in '09, I think. So oh, that's eight, when he yeah. won the title yep. for Boston. So yeah. and was still a good player even when he was on the Nets. He was still a good player when he was on the Nets. Uh, much later in his career, so you wonder, yeah, his, his, his hops were gone, but yeah, but yeah, so he just he stuck it out. He wanted to be the franchise guy. You know, I saw him play a couple times. So I went to school in Minneapolis, so I saw them play. I watched him beat the um, beat the Bucks once, and I watched him beat the Celtics just for fun once. So, you know, I saw him play live in some regular season games, and he, he was the show by himself. Um, and he had, he, you know, he had very Dame, again, very Dame Lillard-like characteristics. Daz, he was, you know, the, the franchise was an expansion franchise. He was the face. He was the brain. He was the brawn. 
He set up all kinds of roots, an amazing community guy. And for someone at his age, talk about Kobe coming in. Kobe had a very, you know, intrepid and international style about him and comes from a lot of money, right? Kevin Garnett was, you know, not. He came from came from nothing in Chicago. Um, was just, but had a maturity about him, Daz, entering the league and having the franchise thrust on his shoulders in a way Kobe didn't have in his young days, mm. right? And he didn't have the wisdom and the coaching and the guidance the way Timmy D had four, four full years of college, right, to kind of grow him up and chisel him and, Again, also Timmy, did, you know, comes from I wouldn't say wealth, but you know, comforts of the Virgin Island sort of lifestyle, right? So Timmy's never had, never wanted. So KG's in that category of comes from nothing, had to work and fight for everything, and and took it really, really seriously. Uh, took the, the Timberwolves franchise really, really seriously, and I think, you know, in in the fog of the minds of the the people who talk about its sort of titles define, you know, define. Um, you know, legacy. I think that that's an absolute false. It's lazy. It's it's reductive, and quite frankly, it's it's an insult to the, to players like KG or Carl Malone, right? Who um, carry franchises for for 10, 15 years, and the 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 goodwill that he had garnered with, you know, a huge population of fans is will that will live well, probably longer. To be honest, probably even as long, if not longer, than you know, winning a singular title. To be honest, Dan. Well, so I think I, I think... will always give KG tons of credit for for sticking it out like he did and carrying that franchise for as long as he did. Well, why I think his his game maybe translates better now. I think he'd be well because he always had range on his shot. So I think coming into the league now, he would have already been getting ready to shoot threes. And the other thing was the guy could handle the ball, so he could actually create his own shot and create his own offense. I mean, I was reminded the other day when they played the Lakers in the in the Western Conference Finals, he ended up playing point guard because uh, Marbury, I think it was at the time, got injured. So <laughs> he starts playing point guard now, you know, because he, and he said himself, he could handle the ball because that's what he, on the streets of Chicago, that's what he he was doing. He's playing two on two, three on three, etc. Um, so I think they he could have been doing that. He could have been a, you know, similar to what we've seen at times from Giannis. Uh, with Garnett, I think he his game would have looked very different coming into the league now. But with his skill set, um, I think he, he, his ceiling could have even been higher. And to your point, I mean, if he lands in a better situation, it doesn't matter when he comes into the league. Um, who knows h- how much differently we're talking about his career from a title's point of view and from a playoff appearance and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. I didn't, I didn't answer your question. I think that's probably fair. Look, he's got the almost uh, not quite very, very, very physical, similar physical physique, as you've said, to, to Giannis in 6'11", 240, chiseled everything, you know, really, really wide shoulders. Um, but he obviously never – he played at Farragut, um, very famous high school in, in Chicago. He's not a guy who would have been handling the ball, though, right, as he was, you know, was in the post dominating and, and dunking. So unlike Giannis, who's, you know, was kind of playing point guard – and growing very, very, very late in his teens, you know, I don't know if KG would, you know, has a Giannis-like handle, but there's no question his game today would translate. Fucking hell, if Joel Embiid's successful, he'd have, he'd be his floor would be Joel Embiid. No kidding, right? He would be. That would be his floor as a top ten, a top five player, perhaps. And yeah, you know, I, yeah, and now that he's got me thinking about Joel and Sam Cassell, that was a really fun team. I mean, I thought it was a really fun team to have that moribund franchise 
rocking and rolling with three really, really brash individuals. I don't know if you had any memories of the Cassell, Spreewell. It was Cassell that got the injury. That's right. It was Cassell that got the injury. It was Sammy Cassell. Yeah. Cassell was a great one. Cassell was one of my favorite players. Uh, through that I area. loved him as a buck, and then that's yeah he went on to play with KG after he, yeah afterwards yeah and uh, what a warrior obviously Sam he's got a title doesn't he with the Rockets in his rookie year or yeah, second year very early on yeah and very he, was early always, on, right? he always sort of elevated whatever term he was on confident those bucks terms. confident yeah. yeah he did absolutely he's the straw that stirred the drink to be honest he unlocked. You know, Glenn, Big Dog, and Ray on the wings, but this isn't about Sandy Well, he monstered Tony Parker, because Tony Parker was only young in those days, and Cassell yeah. used to absolutely monster him. Um, and he was and he was quick enough to stay in front of Tony on the other, on, on you know, the defensive end, and then could get over the top of him on the offensive end. So Cassell, yes, right. He was like this, now you just, now you mentioned it, he sort of had the, the Chris Paul cockiness, but without that athleticism, but it kind of like Shea Gilgis Alexander kind of just, you know, not he couldn't really leap, you know, wasn't explosive, but just just use every angle, um, just masterfully. So it was a half Shea, half Chris Paul <laughs> kind of player, wasn't he? But uh, yeah. Anyway, amazing Hall of Fame class. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting, right? The the bigger, larger than life, and the passing of Kobe with the. Uh, the serenity of a uh, you know Timmy D and then the brashness of KG. It's just like this perfect. Uh, it's a perfect sort of balance. And then, well, it yeah, is. It's, much, it's, it's normally yeah. a situation in the Hall of Fame where one player will be just that's that's the signature player you know going in. Um, and I think this time it's going to be you know it's hard to choose. Obviously, all the focus will be on Kobe given the circumstances. Yeah. But when yeah. you look back on it, it's three great careers, three great players. Um, you know, three players that really did own that that, that period, as I said, between '99 to say 2011, uh, and and will be fondly remembered, I think, by all the fans uh, that that were able to. I've I've you know root for them, and I I saw Garnett come up against the Spurs a number of times, and usually they'd fall short, but you always had to respect the game, um, and and Kobe got the better of the Spurs more times than than not. Uh, and again, you have you have to just tip your hat a lot of times um, to what to what he was able to do. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so good good to look back. Does it is something I guess to look forward to in some ways. Although obviously we, we would much prefer to have Kobe Bryant have been there uh, himself accepting yeah. the award. Before we move on, there we want to talk a little bit about the NFL tonight and, and sort of break from the NBA because there's been a subject we wanted to touch on. I did want to ask you a quick question about those. We, we talked about the 2016 Bucks uh, on the last pod, 89B, and I, you know what? I always thought there was something about that team, does. They were a pain in the ass to play against, and I thought that style the kid was trying to play I thought there was something to it, and what they what they would do is relentless attacking of the rim, and just ultra length on defense. So everyone could defend every position. They're just long, rangy, up in your face, and on the offensive end, they would just attack the rim. It'd be either Carter Williams, OJ Mayo, Giannis, whoever had the ball would just attack the rim relentlessly. And it was a pain in the ass to play against. And you saw it in the, the series, the I think it was the year after, against Toronto, where you saw some signs of it working. I mean, do you sort of see that there is 
there is a possibility that style could work if if given the right players to make it happen and, and, a, and a, I guess a coach who's a little bit better people manager than what the Jason Kidd was? Um, no. <laughs> this is supposed to be the yes and, yes and and build. And what? I, I, I no. Um, for for a couple of reasons. Fourteen fifteen, right? That was the that's Steph Curry's first MVP year, right? And so back then, so real very specifically, what it was is very strong side, heavy trap, heavy aggressive defense, and then use the length and the switchability on the backside and the help to cover up, right? So it was heavy trap, um, heavy aggression, hands in the passing lanes, which then you needed players like, right? The, believe it or not, your favorite guy, Zaza, very, very good position defender. OJ Mayo, actually a really heady and willing defender. Uh, Larry Sanders, right? Back, um, he played a played a bunch that year, you know, cleaning up the glass, right? Jared Dudley, also very heady defender. Ursan Ilyasova, very heady, you know, on-ball post and and help and team system defender. Young young John Henson, you know, pretty useless on the offensive end, but very, very useful on the defensive end, so long and so tall. Obviously, Giannis had grown to 6'11 by that year, and it's what they built. But it was, it was so easily exposed as by great ball movement, number one, and number two, back in 14-15, the NBA teams weren't shooting 43-pointers a game yet, right? And that's why I think they, the league changed too quickly, whereas Jason Kidd refused to change, which got him fired. He kept using the style, using the style when two things were happening. One, he lost all of his heady, smart, wily veterans who know how to play team defense. Zaza, Ursan left, OJ Mayo got into trouble, um, you know, Jared Dudley moved on, etc. So he lost all the brain power. And NBA teams started shooting threes. And so when the teams are getting trapped and whipping the ball around the perimeter, they're loving it. Right? Bang, open threes, open threes, open threes. And the Bucks were 30th in the league that following year in corner three-pointers given up. And so that's why I say, yes, it could work, but only if it was, one, a very veteran team, and two, you had such Andre Roberson, Kawhi Leonard, Paul Georgian, Marcus Smarty and like those types of defenders all around so he could actually close out on the potentially open shooters. But that's just asking so much. It's asking so much. So I think we're seeing Boylan. Boylan has some of these characteristics in Chicago, which gets him some criticism, probably rightly so. Um, so that's why I think it's, just, it's a really, really massive ask until the NBA kind of um, swings back towards, you know, um, you know, uh, 25 three-pointers a game instead of 40 against your opponents. It's way too hard to get to come it from is the court. Very, I mean, it certainly was very personnel-driven, wasn't it? I mean, if you didn't have the exact right personnel for that style, even one player being the wrong type of player, and it all falls to pieces. And I think that's what we saw. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, I, I just think... I still think from a recruiting point of view, I think there's something, and, and maybe some tweaks to that sort of style... But if everyone's zigging in one direction and trying to play the same way, what's the zag? I think that's that's I guess the question that I'm I've been asking myself. Well, um, what is what yeah. is the zag at the moment away from the way that the sort of the Warriors played, if you like, and a lot of those teams are trying to even the Bucks are trying to play at the moment. I mean, what's the zag 
yeah. tactic. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that the th- it's a great point. So the, I don't want to. Su- there's two things, right? Which is there's no nothing to say that you can't try to build a roster like that. I dare I say John Hammond's trying to do it again in Orlando with all those bigs he's drafting, Mo yeah. Bamba and John Isaac, who who are drafted whilst they have Aaron Gordon and Vucevic. You got your starting four and your five, and he goes and drafts even longer and rangier fours and fives. Now, that's working out about as well as Jalil Okafor, Nerlens Noel, and Joel Embiid in Philadelphia at the moment, not to mention they're about half the talent of that of that mob in, in Philly. But there's nothing to say you can't try and build a roster like that but because they don't have the switchability, that's why you see the teams like going the direction the way the Clippers are going or the way that the Philadelphia 76ers have gone is he, or in, in Boston as well, right? You go wing heavy so you can switch and guard, defend two through five with a six foot seven player. And it allows you to be uh, a little more aggressive on the ball and, and cover up in close out and, um, you know, and do that. So it's, it's there. As to the zag, I think, right, what's the only natural zag? Is that okay, right? Unless there's a rule change, I probably don't think it's going to be a massive zag unless there's some sort of rule change around the three-point line or they, they change the you know change the line and take away the corner three or you make the lane a lot bigger or whatever it might mean. Unless there's a rule change, I don't see a massive zag. But the zag you do see, right, which is who are the NBA champions, right? Um, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, and you know that mid-range and what you need in the playoffs and what Giannis couldn't create last year and what Kawhi could was the you know, offense in the mid-range. And you know, dare I say, Chris Middleton, I think was if he's not number one, close to number one in mid-range. You're going to give me a 15-footer. You better be someone who's brilliant at 15-footers and 17-footers because that's what's that really really matters in in playoff series, as you well know. So that's not a major zag, but I think the zag will come through in you know, perhaps X's and O's and execution and sets and, and rotations in, in the playoff series. But I don't think in the regular season, we're going to see massive zags, you know, uh, do you like, do you, can you imagine a, a bully ball style or a, are you just trying to kind of barrack for a post and repost sort of <laughs> <laughs> revivalism? I want somebody other than three points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of but course. I, I think yeah. that's a good point around the mid-range, though, because I think it is it is actually it's become an inefficiency of defenses that they're not very good at stopping. That they actually want you to take these mid-ranges. So in the crux of a game, when you're in the the playoffs, if you've got a Kawhi Leonard uh, or, or Kevin Durant that can hit those with some regularity, then that becomes all the more uh, valuable to you um, as as a way of of getting a bucket. Um, and, and at times, you know, Kawhi's hitting those those pull up. Although, I have to say, two things I want to say, Taz. I watched um, Game 6, the last, uh, I think, 10 minutes of Game 6, Toronto-Milwaukee. And I couldn't believe the amount of luck that Toronto had even to win that game in that series. Like, Kawhi put up a three at one point that was so far short, it just hit the rim. It went up hit the nearly the top of the backboard and then went straight Oh, I know. Of course, I know this. The bucket. Yep. And it was just... And yep. the amount of offensive rebounds that they got that just were tipped... Just bounced the wrong way. And just yep. bounced the wrong way. And you just like... Because they, like, they must have come down three possessions in a row and just put up such bad bricks, the Raptors, that the Bucks had no chance to get the offensive ball because it didn't even hit the rim. 
it just bounces straight off the backboard and straight to Siakam or Ibaka or whoever was sitting there. And I was like, although having said that, the Bucks' offense was absolutely abysmal and they were missing a point guard um, because Bledsoe couldn't be on the floor, unfortunately. And you could see that uh, Brogdon wasn't ready to run a team either at that point, um, if he ever will be. Uh, so uh, that that was disappointing, but I did remember that. And the second point I wanted to make is, there's no did you did you know this stat? There's one I read the other day. There's no fifty, forty, ninety guys this year. But do you know who the closest player is to a fifty, forty, ninety this season? Of course I do. Chris Middleton is going to end up with a point four nine nine shooting percentage from from two point range. Yep. Point four nine nine. Yep. So yep. very very close to a fifty. Four nine nine forty two. 92, right? Something, yeah. Yeah, having a, having yeah. a great year in Middleton. So. Yeah, spectacular. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. Okay, so, guys. Well, look, let, let's move on. We will we'll talk about a little bit of NFL to, to finish us off. And we've been talking about this for a while off air because both of us are in similar spots in that we were long-time NFL fans, but we no longer really watch the NFL. Um, I mean, I think, we, I think it's fair to say we follow it a little bit. We sort of follow the results. But I... I Last season, uh, I'm trying to think. I think I watched the Super Bowl and I didn't watch any other games at any stage in the season. Um, but I think the, 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 the reason we got there are a little bit different. Um, but maybe talk, you through, talk us through your journey first in terms yeah. of where you went because you were probably much more of an NFL fan. It was part of your, your DNA coming from Wisconsin. Uh, the NFL, sort of how do you get to a point where you're just like, I'm not that interested, I can't bring myself to get interested in this sport anymore? Oh, so, uh, yeah, so obviously football, quite a religion still in America. Certainly it is in where I grew up in, you know, Packers country. That being said, they were abysmal for the first 18 years of my life. Like, it was oh, laughing stock. So I was born in 72, would have started paying attention late 70s. You know, six or seven, I loved sports from early on, and they were absolutely dreadful, minus a flash here, and they're dreadful. Laughingstock, one of the worst teams in the league. And so, um, luckily for me, the Brewers are really good in the 80s, and so were the Bucks. And so I, um, I had those as, you know, teams to follow. And but that's what made me a Chargers fan, Daz. I loved it. I was a little kid. I loved the Lightning Bolt and Dan Fouts and Kellen Winslow and James Brooks and Chuck Muncie and and uh, so I love the Chargers because they played this open style and um, that drew that started my affinity for the San Diego team. So I've always, you know, watched the sport and hedged my, you know, hedged my emotional risk of my hometown team being garbage. But then, yeah, then, you know, Favre comes along and it's majestic and, you know, and we won some Super Bowls and had two back-to-back Hall of Fame quarterbacks on, you know, that only matched by Joe Montana and Steve Young is that ever – I think as far as I know, it's never really happened. So 40, almost 40, 30 years, 30 consecutive years of Hall of Fame level quarterback play, mm-hmm. Daz. And even with 30 consecutive years of Hall of Fame level quarterback play, I, I, I just lost interest eventually for a cacophony of reasons. Part of it, right, living in Australia and and just sort of seeing, um, you know, having to watch in the morning to watch a game live. Like I can watch an NBA game on replay, but you can't watch an NFL game on replay. It absolutely, it completely changes it. When there's only 16 games a year, there's no point 
I found it was really almost no point watching a Packers game when I knew the result. I'd watch the 10-minute highlights and get good enough. But uh, for me, there's something about basketball where, uh, you know, no matter if I knew the result or not, um, I could still watch a game after after knowing it. So part of it's driven by that, but most of it, to be honest, right, it's driven by the big one was CTE and just the, the way the NFL has not, you know, been transparent and gone and helped players. A big part of it for me is just the, you know, um, try not to use the S word, but this the the human beings being so replaceable in that league and just the, the players having so little power in that league. Contracts aren't guaranteed. It's very easy just to churn, churn the human factory, you know, churn them out and burn them out, Daz. Well, that's what they do and, with running backs. I mean, look at DeMarco Murray, classic example. Just yeah. run, run a guy into the ground for two yeah. or three years and then he's, well, he's, he's out of the he, league. But you're seeing the upper 1%, Daz. That's what I'm saying. The whole system of football, there's no minor league football. There's no money. Mm. Like these kids are treated like basically like greyhounds, Daz. They're, they're ripped and whipped and raced and raced and raced and raced through Pop Warner, through high school, through college. They have no path, Daz. And one, a half percent of 1%, right, make it to the, to the league. And even when they do that, their careers are remarkably short. And so the whole economic system and the corruption of college football turned me off. Roger Goodell is a massive turnoff. The Colin Kaepernick situation was a massive turnoff. The injustice of the Jacksonville Jaguars getting absolutely <laughs> robbed, you know, so that New England can win another Super Bowl. The injustice of the rules, what's a catch and not a catch, and these horrific injustices. But that seemed to be, it seems to be engineered into the sport where the NFL has taken like the the right-wing Republican view of the world, as long as you can get people angry and engineer controversy, yep. that's going to drive up interest. Like they, they're not trying to arbitrate justice and equity. They're trying to arbitrate WWF-like entertainment, right? So get the New Orleans fan base angry and rage, right? Get fan bases angry. They're very, very, very comfortable. Not only comfortable with it, the NFL embraces it. And they welcome it. That's part of their business model is to have rage and fan interests and right um, angry, angry people. So I guess the whole culture does whilst the NBA has globalized, whilst LeBron and you've heard me talk about this he used to be my enemy. I was indifferent in awe of his game, but indifferent. Then he was the, you know, the villain for doing what he did. And then he's won me over the last few years. Right. Not only with the way he did eviscerate the Raptors and, um, you know, and then done things like they're all rising, sort of rising all tides for players, right? Uh, for, you know, player player empowerment, player movement. So these these complete contrast as I've seen these two kind of arcs just, just cross over. The NFL for me is on an actually downward trajectory going towards, you know, where professional boxing and professional wrestling is going is entertainment. And um, the human story is just not told that all these people are replaceable. That's what the direction that's going whilst the NBA tries it's not perfect. Obviously, the Daryl Morey Hong Kong situation symptomatic of this is part of what you accept when you have a, a, a league trying to express itself and be part of the cultural fabric. Is you have awful events like what happened with you know Morey in, in China and the incentive situation there. But that's a long way of saying, really, really long way. Is I've completely lost interest. And the final thing that straw that the straw that broke the camel's back for me was it was too two or three seasons ago, and I was still, this would be two seasons ago now, yeah, I was still keeping an eye, but Aaron Rodgers got hurt really bad. 
yeah, I was watching the game. It was one of the few games the last few years I've watched against Dallas. Dreadful. And I go, I watched some of those games, though. I was still watching, and I watched four or five or six of those games and watched the team score 13 points a game, and I thought, oh, my God, this is literally the most unwatchable sport ever. And that's when it dawned on me, Daz. I go, this is what it must be like to be a Bears fan. <laughs> no, no, I'm not joking, right? Like, you got the Spurs and my and I got the Bucks, right? I've had 30 years of Hall of Fame quarterbacking, and when it's taken away from you, the game is brutally, brutally ugly. It's not graceful. There's no poetry. There's no artistry. There's no strategy. It's your your team is better than my team, and, you know, only bizarre luck or some stupid rule change is going to have the outcome change. When you're watching a team with a terrible quarterback, why even bother, right? Why even bother? So for me, that was the end of it. That was the end of my road. I'm like, that's it. I go, I'm, I'm partially probably emotionally heads from Aaron Rodgers' retirement, but I go, this is what must be what 20, 20 fan bases in the NFL must live every single season for decades of when your team can't buddy fucking move the ball and be competent and, and have an offense that runs. How can you possibly well, I think that's the, the key word is competence. I mean, to me it was, and I think you've sort of covered it in the same way, it was death by a thousand cuts. Uh, you know, you just sort of, one thing happens and you think, oh, that's, and it, and it became that's the point right. with the NFL where you feel almost dirty watching it. It's like, uh, it's <laughs> me watching yeah. this. Like when, when a guy like Richard Dent, who was one of my favourite bears from back in yeah. the, the 80s, the, the, a guy shoots himself in the chest so that he can donate his brain to science because he knows something's wrong. Or you get an Aaron Hernandez situation. Uh, or even, you know, um, Antonio Brown at the moment. Like, what story would break tomorrow that you would be surprised to hear with, with, dealing with Antonio Brown? Yeah, I would know. Would there be it one be... thing that would surprise you? There wouldn't... I, I, I don't know. Unless no. he ripped off his face and was an alien from V or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Maybe, maybe that would be a little bit of a shock. Other than that, it's just like anything's in play, and the guys clearly has some issues. Now, whether they're CT related, I think it's highly likely they are. Um, and and we, we yeah. know they're already trying to get to get a, develop a test to see if you are more likely uh, to be affected by CT, because the reality is some players haven't been affected over the years. Um, and maybe there are players that are more susceptible or not. But uh, I think they've got a long way to go on. And as you said, their level of transparency has been absolutely pathetic around that. Um, and then the other parts, as you say, they, they court controversy. You know, it's not a fluke that the Patriots have had multiple playoff games over the years where they've had zero penalties against them. Um, you know, that go right back to the, the tuck rule, was it? Um, Oakland, against, yeah. Against Oakland, yeah. and you know, so they've yeah. just been injustice after injustice. Like you're watching that Des Bryant catch that wasn't a catch, and then there was the Calvin Johnson catch that wasn't a catch, and I mean, it was just one one play after another after another sort of decided in this manner. But the killer for me was being a Bears fan, as it really was, and I just got to a point where I and I remember saying this to you before the day yeah. after. Uh, Trubisky, I said, if they draft a quarterback today, I'm out. I said, I'm done. It's over for me. I'm finished. I can't do it. I just cannot do this to myself anymore. And you've got to understand, I had lived through, you know who the Bears' best quarterback was by quarterback rating, Daz, through all the years I watched the Bears? 
I'll, I'll give check. you Eric Kramer. Kramer, yeah. Eric Kramer. He was he was pretty good. He was all right. He was average. He was NFL average. He was NFL he was. average. Look, yep. and yep. Bears fans, look, we're different. Like you had Favre and Rogers, you know. Yep. We had Jim Harbaugh, Steve Walsh, Eric Kramer. Um, yeah, we had Rick Myra for a year from memory. We had um, did. who was the guy they got from Pittsburgh? Jim Miller. That was the running Cordell quarterback. Stewart. Cordell yep, Stewart. Yeah, uh, and obviously, you know, the best quarterback we had was Jim McMahon, who was Caleb unfortunately. Yeah, Jim McMahon never recovered from Charles Martin's cheap shot in the true six, yep. uh, which yep. stopped the Bears going back to back in that year, and he was never the same player except after that McMahon from that point True, but we yeah. didn't really worry it, as long as we were confident that we, we knew we were going to win games on defence and the, the quarterback was there to be a game manager be competent we're going to have Neil Anderson running the ball we're going to have Matt Forte running the ball we're going to have a big tight end like Greg Olson over the middle taking catches you know we're, we're going to be throwing these quick slants to the, the the wide receivers whatever right then they decide of course in the what was it the sort of mid two thousands? Oh no, we're gonna we're gonna bring a franchise quarterback in, Des. Right, we're gonna trade the farm. We're gonna bring this guy in, Jay Cutler. Well, Des. <laughs> yeah, look, that was look. as a Packers fan, it was just so glorious. I mean, <laughs> you could almost count on even the Packers would play a terrible game. You just knew that Cutler could snatch you know defeat from the jaws of victory all by himself <laughs> and so there was a there was a you know guilty pleasure watching him watching him do something well mccarthy is, would just blitz yeah. and he'd blitz every time just, for two reasons yeah. one and this is the defense i'll give of cutler despite the fact that the bears said we're now going to build around a quarterback they never once got a free agent weapon for him to throw the ball to and they never spent a cent on their offensive line so yeah. when they played Green Bay, Green Bay would just blitz, bring the house every play. And of course... Clay Matthews, Clay Matthews, Clay Matthews. That's right. Yeah. And Cutler's yeah. one of yeah. the worst decision makers I've ever seen, particularly yeah. under pressure yeah. as a quarterback. Happy feet. Right. When I realised just how bad it was for Cutler, Cutler got injured one year, and he was actually playing one of the years... It was the year after the um, NFL Championship game when he hurt the knee. And he was actually playing quite well the year after. It was the best year he'd had at the Bears. And he got injured about, oh, I think they were nine and three at the time. And I remember Jason yeah. Campbell they'd signed as a backup. Oh, yeah. Jason Campbell was a, a yeah. reasonable, like he yeah. was a, he's a reasonable NFL level player. He'll be all right. Jason Campbell looked like a scared little kid behind that offensive line because they just couldn't block anyone. I don't know if they would have been able to block me coming after him, Daz. And I thought, this is this is why Cutler's getting hurt. This is why Cutler's one of the reasons so Cutler's so terrible. Um, so that that's the only defence I'll ever make of Jay Cutler. The problem with Cutler was, of course, he just didn't care by his own admission, um, and he never really put the work in. NFC title game was for me. That's where I thought every if the fans were still backing Cutler, and he kind of got he got nicked up and was just had this dumb look on his face riding that riding that bike on the sidelines of the nfc title game against green bay on his face the blame look on his face walking around well the bears you know, were in that game we were driving caleb oh, haney was, Haney was terrifying 
that was one of the most nerve-wracking games. I go, we can't lose to a backup quarterback. All right, that would have been a just tragic, tragic loss. But that's when I knew. That's when I knew this guy he just didn't have it. He doesn't have the competitive fire. He's he's terrified of the big moment. Well, he then... was two two and eleven against the Packers, and he threw twenty three interceptions in those thirteen games, right? Compared to fifteen touchdowns and was sacked only thirty six times in those thirteen. <laughs> I felt like fifty six. I felt like eighty six. Yeah. yeah. But after that game, does yeah they, they signed him to an extension, and then get this. And actually, yeah, there was—I think it was a year after, there. a couple of years after that. The reason they signed the extension is they value winning. Was that their logic? What's their was definition it of winning? Can you explain to me what their definition of winning was? They it must signed have been all... him to not one extension, but two extensions after that. Well, I think he was eight and seven against the Lions. I think that's what they meant. He was plus 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 one against the Lions. That's beautiful. But no, let me ask you. So you'd said that the moment that you would you kind of out was if they drafted a quarterback. Why? Like, why were you? Because why were you against them drafting a quarterback? Well, right. uh, partly because I, I wasn't high on that on quarterbacks in that draft, which says a bit about my NFL knowledge. Because Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Mahomes and were, Watson, yeah, Watson were yeah. drafted afterwards. But I just thought, look, we'd just gotten rid of Cutler, right? Put all their faith in the the front office. Put all their yeah, faith in Cutler. Yeah. And blew up, right? It's like this. We've got to rebuild, rebuild defense first, right? And my my whole theory was rebuild the defense, go and trade for a Jimmy Garoppolo, bring him in as a competent quarterback, right? And get the oh, pieces in place that you need. Yeah, Basically, uh, exactly yeah. what the Forty ers did was what I wanted the Bears to do, right? Including. So then I hear on the day, so the day of the draft comes and I read the headline, Bears draft a quarterback because they just signed Mike Lennon, right? And I was actually looking forward to the Mike <laughs> Lennon era, Daz, if only for the comic <laughs> relief, right, of it. Yeah. And I went, oh, and then I saw there was a trade and I thought, well, maybe, if maybe they've traded down to get a quarterback and I thought, okay, I'll probably yeah. never that. No, 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 they traded up to get a quarterback that everyone had mock draft probably going towards the end of the first round, if not even into the second round. Who knows with Trubisky, right? Certainly not any... No one had him ahead of Watson. I wouldn't have think too many would have had him ahead of Mahomes at the time. We get him, okay? Then in the second round, they pick up a guy from a Division Two school, tight end, Adam Sheehan, <laughs> who I'm watching on grainy footage, right, who's, he looks like a hulking guy. They're like, he could be the next Gronk. It's like, he's played, do you understand I remember, what Division I think we, 2 schools I think we were online, we were on Messenger, weren't we, at this moment where even Mel Kuyper and the, the, the people were saying, oh, you know, great athlete, but oh, you know, ooh, like throwing grade on him, right? You know, like this is a you know, small, well, you know, he was like what? the playing his children. Yeah. Well, guess who yeah. the 49ers draft in the third round? A guy by the name of George Kittles. George oh Kittles my God. is ranked the number one tight end. Number in one tight end in the whole NFL. Right? <laughs> yeah. You can't make this stuff up. The same season, yeah. they sign Ray McDonald. So they bring in Vic Fangio, ex 49ers defensive coordinator. They say Ray McDonald's just been sacked from the 49ers for beating up his girlfriend slash wife partner, whatever, right? 
they go, oh, there's a chance to sign him. And they say, well, look, are we sure that he's going to be the right guy? Vic Fangio goes, no, don't worry. I know the family. So this is a true story. He rings Ray McDonald's mum, asks Ray McDonald's mother to provide a reference for her son and verse for her son that he's he's not going to get in trouble again. Go and Google it. This is true. They sign Ray McDonald, go out and have a press conference and say, I know people are a bit concerned about this, but don't worry, his mother has vouched for him. He's he's a changed man, right? No, this is not... Later that same day they signed him, he goes to pack up his stuff from his old house to move him with his mum, gets in a fight with the same partner, and the police are called because he's strangling her inside the house, and he's arrested again. And the bears have to cut him 24 hours after signing him. You are sure. This I don't remember. I, this must have so that, slipped okay. the nuts with me. Oh, There's my enough. God. Let me take you to another one where they sack Robbie Gold, right? One of the most reliable field goal kickers in, in the NFL the last 10 years. Right? Oh. 49. Again, a guy that's now gone to the 49ers. They sign a myriad of different kickers. End up with Cody Parkey, who had never hit a, a, a field goal over 45 yards, I don't think. Finally get to the plus beyond a really good um, defense. Mm. Cody Parkey's called up. So this is the only game I've watched in the Trubisky era, I might add. I thought, they've sucked me back in, Daz. They're hosting mm. a plus <laughs> three seed against Philadelphia. I'm like, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. let's watch this game. Obviously, Trubisky sucks because he just he does suck. Yeah, he was terrible. They've got a field goal though to win the game at the end. Uh, I think it was about thirty-eight yards, thirty-five, thirty-eight yards. There, not a not a really hard kick. Anyway, the double doink hits one post, hits the other post, gone. Yeah. <laughs> right, not the first game they'd lost that year from a missed field goal from Cody Parkey. Okay, so in the off season. This is how much of a genius this franchise is. This is oh, how no. cutting edge does the Chicago Bears are. This is what they did the trial for their new kicker. They bought six guys in that they were considering signing. They lined them up on the exact same spot that Cody Parkey missed that field goal. They had the PA. They did not. Again, Google it. They had the PA. Have crowd noise blaring. Loud noise. I remember this now. That's right. And yes. had all the kickers line up, and whoever made the most from that point got the job. Right? So the guy they hired to get the job, who I can't remember his name because he's already been sacked again. He's now without a club. Game three of the season. One-on-one. You need a big win. Field goal, exactly the same spot. What happens? The guy misses wide right. <laughs> You're just like how they just can't they stop doing? tinkering. And then they, yeah. And then the, the the final one I'll leave you with is in the off season they say literally come out and say we need to sign a middling quarterback so that we can put pressure on Mitch Trubisky to get him better. <laughs> right. Then they go and sign Nick Foles, who has whose only relevant moment in the last couple of years was against the Bears in that game I just referenced. Right a guy that has not been able to stay healthy his entire career, right? Then it comes out afterwards, they could have signed Cam Newton, but said, oh, no, we're scared off from Cam Newton because of his injury history, so therefore we're going to sign Nick Falk. 
But Nick you, Foles, though, right? Nick Foles. Was, you like, can't... He won the Super Bowl, right? Like, he, he single-handedly, right, saved, won them the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Philadelphia, right? A few years ago. And he's is that, doing, or is that five years ago? And I he's had some pretty bad injuries since. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, and, and, and look, I don't think Cam Newton's going to be the answer either. Just quietly, I wouldn't be sitting there. But I, I think there's more chance Cam Newton's going to be relevant next year than Nick Foles. Did Cam Newton actually switch teams? This is how out of out of touch I, I don't am. think he has. Or is yet. he still? A f- I don't yeah, think okay. he has as yet. But he's certainly on the on the block. He's on the way out. Okay. On the block. Right. And the, the Bears could have traded for him. They ended up trading for for Nick Foles instead. So there's there comes what, a what point. I find what I find remarkable is is the is that J- Jimmy Garoppolo was only a second round pick, but that was too steep. <laughs> but they would rather pay more than that, right? Oh, you know, one you know who their big free agent off-signing, off-season signing was? It was another oh, Jimmy. Jimmy Graham. Jimmy Graham, who was done two years ago. Yes. Because Adam Sheen has already flamed out. Oh. It's gone. <laughs> oh, this... There comes a point, there's where you've just got to say, I'm done. Enough's enough. I, I cannot do this to myself anymore. Like, I love that team. In the- Look, that's what it felt like being a fan of the Bucks under under um, Herb Cole. GM after GM, coach after coach, bad draft after bad draft. They finish on the nine seed or the eight seed or the ten seed every year, right? Never get a high pick. It just it just a treadmill of of sameness. Yeah, there's there's a culture, and only an ownership change oftentimes will will break the cycle. But yeah, mate. I just actually know you've got. Re- I just forwarded you. It looks like a, a, a beautiful retrospective. It's called Madness at Forty Three Yards: The Bears Kicker Competition Through the Eyes of Those Who Lived It. This was just written like late last year. Obsession, conspiracy theories, questionable math. Welcome to the Bears Kicker Competition. Seven months after the double doink sunk their Super Bowl hopes, Chicago's obsessed with finding the right foot as pressure builds towards the next big kick. An inside look at the wildest kicker search ever held from those who lived it. So oh. during your COVID-19, maybe the intrigue. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry the Bears suck, but yeah. Um, so I got to, I'm actually, I'm done, done, done with the NFL. I stopped watching middle of 2017. I played one more year of fantasy league in 2018 and had one of my greatest seasons ever beat a highly competitive team. 12-team league to a fantasy title with Christian McCaffrey and Melvin Gordon, the greatest running back bully, you know, group I'd ever assembled. And then I went on high note and I didn't see one minute of football last year. I think the Packers made the playoffs in, they make the playoffs in 2019, I think, but it was a pretty, they got smoked by San Francisco, right? In the playoffs, which everyone expected, like that wasn't a contest from what I recall. So, I remember tracking that at work going, hey, if this game is remotely close at halftime, I'm in. I'm going to let myself in, but it was it never got close. So, look, I will still I will still keep a glimpse if the Packers, like it will be when the Packers are in the playoffs. That's the only time I'm really going to even give it a look. So are you going to give it a look? Will you be curious? Will you watch? Let's say the opening day does start no. in September. No, no you're, no, you're out. I, I, you're done. Yeah. I, I, I might watch the Super Bowl. That, that's about it for me. Um, yeah, and I watch this. Yeah. I really ain't watch the Super Bowl because I've I've got a <laughs> I've got a sneaky interest in San Francisco just from the point of view I think 
that's what I think the Bears should have done. That's what the team the Bears should look resemble now. Oh. Um, so, yeah, they know, took a path your team didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, no, but I mean, at the moment, you just sort of there's there's no reason to watch. I just and, and I think the the standard of play, um, you know, I'd I'd like to go back and watch some of the games. I watched the the uh, documentary about the Buffalo Bills and the four in a row that they lost, which was actually quite good. And I thought, gee, I, I remember that that football being a lot better than what the football is now. But I wonder if it's just our own nostalgia that sort of leads us down that path, or if it really was better um, back in the day. Well, well yeah. Um... I mean, from the Bears, you mean the NFL in general? I think the NFL in general. I mean, I remember those Bears teams, like the, the late 80s right through the early 90s. The Bears were always yeah. a playoff team. Um, and even the, the Bears were actually... The Bears have been a pretty constant, consistent playoff team, Yeah, they've been, they've been, you know, competitive, mostly, right? They didn't have, like, five, six years in a row of, like, the Lions, right, just go through... You know, they went through you know four, five, six years where they're winning four games a mm. year. I don't think you had a period that's like that. But uh, um, and you got yourself a pretty spectacular stadium renovation down there at Soldier Field. Which you ever been to? Have you been to? You don't been to Chicago, have you? No, no. I've got a oh, yeah, standing yeah. invitation from a friend yeah. of my, a friend of Cram's, and who I yeah. met also Kevin, who said any time you're in Chicago come to Soldier Field. So I wouldn't mind uh, going to Soldier you. Field yeah. one day. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's probably not high on my list. Of yeah, no, but like, I think, moment. look, like everything, like we talk about even with LeBron and, and Jordan, and that'll be probably no doubt the next pod we do when all the, when I get to say I was right and Bill Simmons was wrong. And I know this because I lived in the same suburbs, literally around the corner from where Jordan lived in Chicago at the time of his peak of his powers and all the stuff's going to come out about his, you know, not exactly a nice guy um, and definitely not beloved by all, to say the least. Mm. Um, anyway, that will come out. But I think we I think the NFL is just a different era. And it's just so brutal. So and it, so I don't know if the game is any better or worse. I think the rules are more just the injustice of the rules makes the just the game itself. I find just so much more unlikable and unwatchable. Mm. Um, and all the, and just, I, whilst I understand all the player safety, of course I do. The game, the game is not the same when the quarterback can just, you know, stand back there unabated and just pick apart defense and dink and dunk and dink and dunk. And every quarterback has 70% completion dazzle. Well, no shit. Cause they don't throw the ball down the yeah. field because right. Um, that's what they don't, that there's the, the data says don't do that anymore. And so it sounds like Patrick Mahomes is, and that team has gone a bit of their direction, you know. Um, so good on good on the Chiefs for zagging when everyone else was zigging. But uh, yeah, look, I, I think I, I do probably. It's hard to separate, you know. The it's hard to separate or compare generations. But I think I think the thing yeah. to watch with the NFL, there's two things to watch. One is the the research in suits here, which I think they they're getting a little bit more serious around now. Um, because it is an existential threat to the game, I think, to the future of the game. Uh, and I think the second thing is to watch yeah. college sports, because there has been some movement towards paying players, even though we're only at the top end. I think it's little victories like that that may start to get a bit of a groundswell towards paying players across the board in the multi-billion dollar industry that's become college sports. So I think they're the two areas to really watch. Because I think if they don't fix those, I just 
I've got a feeling it's just going to become that bloated NFL that it's going to sort of um, die by its own excesses in many ways. Yeah, I think it's a very fair sentiment. I think it's a ticking time bomb, isn't it? And I, I wouldn't, I don't trust anything NFL does, and so unless there's a truly independent body and independent data around what this is, you know, I won't believe anything that they say. So uh, it's a ticking time bomb. I think that's fair. Mm. And um, yeah, I've got no interest in Tom Brady in Tampa Bay, and no <laughs> interest in where Cam Newton goes. You haven't goes got your and... Tampa Bay shirts. That's... No, no Tampas. No, nope. <laughs> But uh, um, that being said, a couple more months of, of COVID, no entertainment whatsoever. I might, you know, I might find myself watching highlights or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, anyway. mate. Well, we might leave okay, it there buddy. for tonight. Uh, have a good weekend. Uh, we'll try and touch base again. We might even have some news, uh, NBA news to sort of talk about or, or talk about if anything did definitive has been decided on the season days. But uh, enjoy the weekend, mate. And um, you might... Look forward to the Jordan documentary, I suppose, and we'll get some some true stories about <laughs> how, how he really was. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Here it comes. Here it comes. Yes. Okay, right, buddy. Mate. Good Take to talk care. to you. Cheers. Bye. Bye.